is only a couple of weeks long, but it's something that God put on my heart, especially during the COVID shutdown season. I started to look through uh, uh, some elements of our church and think through uh, and, and research and read the Bible and, and, and gather uh, uh, as much as I could in that time to, to, to kind of evaluate how the different aspects of our church was going. And one of those areas was the area of worship in our church. And um, I probably do need to somewhat apologize because over the last five years, uh, I've always loved worship, I've always loved music in particular, and and have been part of church bands all my life, but I really wanted to create a space where people can first encounter God's love before really needing to worship and express. Uh, I, I thought that that was a good way to go. But as I studied the Word of God, and as, as I hope to share with you today, that that is not really what the Bible says. Uh, and, and, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk a lot more about worship, but today I want to set a bit of a foundation. And the reason why uh, we're calling this series Adore is because the definition of worship is very much wrapped up in this word adore. And so we're going to be unpacking this word today, and uh, next week we'll continue to, uh, we'll talk a bit more about expressing worship next week, that's the plan, unless God decides to take me on a different uh, route as I prepare. But I want to focus on the word adore today. And uh, the word adore is a a really interesting word, because uh, the way we use the word adore today is completely different from what is intended to. Uh, its original intention is not what it is today. And, and to give you an example of other words that have gone through similar transformations, um, you know when you call someone uh, an idiot? Um, yeah, that used to mean something extremely specific. It used to mean a psychological uh, condition. It used to mean that uh, you, you had some mental uh, issues, retardation, that kind of stuff. It was a literal uh, a medical diagnosis. But now we just go to someone and if someone cuts, you, uh, cuts in front of you on a road, you say, what an idiot. It's like, well, you see how the word has generalized. And when words generalize, they tend to lose its meaning. And the word adore went through a similar transformation over time. Um, Today, according to dictionary.com, this is the definition of adore. To adore is to love someone very much, especially in a way that shows a lot of admiration and respect. Now, when I looked at this, I thought, you know what, that definition is not even how we use it today. Because we would say something like, oh, I adored the morning tea at Lyft this morning. I adore my pet. I adore the sunset at the beach. I adore this weather. I adore lots of different things, right? And we adore all of those things, but they're not people. The definition there is to love someone, but somehow we now use the word adore to relate to a whole bunch of different things. Oh, that soft toy is so adorable, right? We use these words and it's generalized and we've lost its meaning. And when we think about adoring God, we have probably and possibly missed the point. You see, the original word adore uh, is a Latin word that then got kind of used by the French, and then it kind of came into the English. And uh, the, the word adore, the original word adore, means to worship, to pay divine honors to, 
and to bow down. I want you to think about how you use the word adore and do you use it in the original intention? Do you bow down to your pet? Some people are nodding their heads, which is a little bit scary. Do you give divine honors to your pet? I hope not. You're not burning incense to your pet. You're not praying to your pet. You are not going, oh, mighty one who has created the heavens and the earth. Oh, Mowgli, please stand up. Mowgli is our cat. We do not do that, although I will say that we probably give him too much adoration. But the word adore has shifted, and it has shifted our worship. And I want to bring us back to the root of worship. And to do so today, we are going to go through a journey through the whole book of Exodus. There are 40 chapters. So we're going to be here all the way till tonight. So get yourself ready. Morning tea is looking beautiful. No, I'm going to give you a very brief, quick overview of the book of Exodus. But through that, we are going to camp on one particular chapter. But for us to really get that chapter, I need to give you the context, which is why we're going to go through most of the book of Exodus. So when we get to Exodus, we read about the Israelites being in slavery for about 400 years in Egypt. I love the Exodus story because the Exodus story is meant to be a picture of humanity. And so when you read the Exodus story, don't read about the Israelites uh, per se, even though that is what happened to them. But we also need to read about how it, it, it talks about certain aspects of the human condition. And slavery in Egypt is the same as slavery to sin. The New Testament talks about it, uh, and, and we will at some point cover some of those uh, parallels and similarities, but the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God raises a man named, who knows his name? Yes, we got a few Christians in the house that actually read the Bible. Fantastic. So we got Moses that was raised up. He becomes the deliverer of Israel. He brings about the 10 plagues uh, that decimate Egypt and they finally get released and they go through the wilderness on a journey to the promised land. The promised land literally for them is the land of Canaan. And they were making their way across the wilderness to uh, the land of Canaan. And along the way, God does some amazing things. He provides shelter during the day. He provides heat for the night. He provides food from the sky and water from the rock. God just basically looks after every single one of their needs. Absolutely amazing. Uh, absolutely fantastic. But even so, in a midst of God's provision, the Israelites are stubborn people uh, to the point where at, at one particular uh, segment of the story, they actually complain to Moses and say, it would be better for us to be slaves again because at least back in Egypt, we had meat pots. If you read the story, it is absolutely ridiculous that they would rather have the Egyptian meat pots rather than um, uh, quail from heaven. And manna from heaven, which well, it was quail from the sky and manna, from, yeah, anyway. Uh, anyway, so, so they did not really see the provision of God, which is crazy, but God continues to journey with them. That is something that we need to see as much as the Israelites are really annoying when you read Exodus. Mm -hmm. We need to see God's faithfulness. And the faithfulness of God takes them to a, a turning point in chapters in chapter 19. Like I mentioned, Exodus has 40 chapters. The first 18 chapters was them uh, uh, going through the Exodus of Egypt all the way to 
a place called Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is a place that they camp for quite a long time. I don't know if that literally is Mount Sinai, it's a mountain that, in that region, but imagine, that's probably a kind of place that they were camping around, and the Israelites camped there for such a long time that the rest of the book of Exodus, they're there. So the first 18 chapters, they were Egypt, and then traveling through the wilderness. Chapters 19 to 40, they are at Mount Sinai, and they do not move. And the reason why they do not move is because God meets with Israel there. And it's a very pivotal meeting of God and His people. In particular, what God was doing there was establishing His covenant, or, or if, we, if you will, a, a binding promise with the people of Israel. And if you read the book of Exodus uh, from chapters 19 to 40, it is boring. Just warning, if you want to read it, it is boring if you don't know the context because in the chapters, in the 21 chapters, God gives them a whole bunch of laws. He says, you will do this, you will not do that, this is how you deal with this situation, this is how you deal with that situation. Many of us get this idea that the book of Leviticus is when God talks about all the laws. Yeah, he does, but it starts in Exodus. He goes all the way back to Exodus and he already is sharing all of these laws. And when we read all of these laws, we're like, God, this is a little bit full on. You know, you took these people out of Egypt just to oppress them with all your laws. Well, we need to understand something. We need to understand the context and what is taking place here. God was not making a legally binding document for the Israelites to follow. He was, practically speaking, marrying the people of Israel. The covenant that he was establishing at Mount Sinai is better understood as a marriage covenant. In fact, the Bible uses the picture of a marriage as uh, the picture of his, God's relationship with us. And so he was establishing a marriage covenant. And still you might be wondering, why is there a marriage covenant that includes 21 chapters of laws and things that you need to do? Not a perfect analogy, but go along, go, go, go along with me on this. But it's kind of like those extremely cheesy Christmas movies that Beck makes me watch once a year um, about the, the handsome young crown prince and um, the little slave girl that um, really loves the crown prince but knows she has no chance with the crown prince. But the crown prince takes a fancy to the little slave girl. But the slave girl, in order to become the princess, actually needs to learn etiquette. She needs to learn how to dress because she's no longer a slave, she's now a princess. She needs to learn how to conduct herself, how to relate to other people that she never used to relate to because she used to be a slave and now she's a princess. She needs to learn how to conduct herself as the future queen and not just as a little slave girl that cleans the kitchen for the rest of her life. And so in her journey to get married to the crown prince, she has to go through a transformation and she has to go through an understanding of how the prince's will works. Because the other way around is that the prince gives up his royalty and becomes a slave. 
And she knows that being a slave isn't that great. She knows that being in the palace is where it's great. And that's what I mean is a little bit cheesy and it's not a perfect analogy. But this is a picture of what God is doing. He's saying, you used to be slaves in Egypt, but now you are my people. You used to be uh, no power. Other people used to tell you what to do when you wake up, tell you what you do throughout the whole day. They will whip you and, and, and beat you up if you do not behave and and do exactly what they say. But now you are not that person anymore. You are now my possession, and I'm going to teach you what it's like to be my people. And so what was taking place at Mount Sinai was what God was setting up for the Israelites to do. This is something that is really important. We cannot just take uh, our mindset about how the world works and impose it into what is taking place there. We need to understand the context, and the context is that God was marrying a slave people. And that's a very important thing. And so that's the heart behind the rest of the book of Exodus, and we are going to cover a little bit of it. And so we are in Exodus 19, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 6. And now see this in terms of this whole marriage contract that we're talking about. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I want you to see that, that God did not need to choose the Israelites, but by His grace, He does. And He says, you need to keep my covenant. And, and for us in our mindsets, like, what? You need us to do stuff? But think about it this way. If, the, in the analogy of the Christmas prince and princess slave story, if the princess decides to behave like a slave in the palace, will she be allowed to stay in the palace? Think about it that way. If the princess does not understand her new status as royalty and instead behaves like a slave, she does not have a place in the palace. And in the same way, if the Israelites don't understand that they're no longer a slave nation, but they are now God's nation, and they are meant to show the rest of the world what it is like to be God's nation, then their behaviors have to come in alignment with what God is saying. That is what is taking place here. And so the Israelites, they hear this and they're like, yes, this is awesome. Obviously, the slave people are going, God is choosing us to be His treasured possession. This is absolutely fantastic. And so what then happens is that God's glory shows up. Exodus 19, 16 to 19 says this, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. How many of you have read this before, and it just completely glossed over you? What is the point of this? 
Why did God need to do this? Why did God just rock up like any normal person? And maybe he can be dressed in his royal outfit with his massive crown and a, and a nice scepter made of gold. And he's like, yep, I am now your God. Let's get married, people. Why did he need to do this whole show? Well, the whole show is meant to show us that God is God. And this is something that I think I missed. And that is why worship for me was a little bit off balance. Because when we think about God and we think about worshiping God, we often think about worshiping loving Jesus. We kind Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus who died for our sins. Jesus who demonstrates great grace, right? We, we love singing about that. I was thinking about it. I was going through the catalog of songs that we as a church, we do. And I was looking at it and I was going, wow, we worship God because He loves us. 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 That's the theme of a lot of our songs, which is not wrong. It is absolutely right. But there is something else in the Bible that I completely miss and that we worship God because He is God. And, and, and as I was doing my study, something came up that was really interesting. You know, the book of John, the gospel of John was written by a disciple named John, pretty clearly. And John refers to himself in that book as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Yep. He was probably more than any other person on the face of the planet when it came to Jesus and his ministry on earth. He recognized and understood that he was loved by Jesus. So much so that at the Last Supper, John is actually reclining on Jesus' bosom. That's what it says. Not my words, the Bible's words. He leans into Jesus. He is so close. He is so comfortable in God's presence. And that is... What our Western church often talks about. This is Jesus who is relatable. This is Jesus who is empathetic. This is Jesus who is here with you. This is Jesus who is so amazing. And it is true. But then John writes another book called the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus shows himself in his full glory to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mind you, not just any disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it says literally says that when John saw the glory of Jesus, he fainted and thought that he had died. Now there is being wowed by someone's glory, and then there is the absolute terror of seeing someone's glory that causes you to faint and believe that you are dead. I have never fainted at seeing Beck. I'm sorry, Beck. When she came down the aisle, dressed up in her full wedding regalia, looking beautiful and glorious, I did not fall down and thought, I am never going to live again. Right? It was not the case. But yet John, who knew that he was loved by Jesus on seeing the glory of Jesus, he fell down, fainted, thought that he had died. What is going on? What is going on is that we need to understand that we have a God of love. We have a God who would die on the cross for our sins, but he is still God. 
He is God who created the heavens and the earth. He is God that literally when He rocks up, these things happen not because God is putting on a show, but because He is God. A thick cloud comes because God descends on fire. I'm like, what the heck? God is like, well, that's normal for me. I literally rock up and there's fire and there's smoke. This is how it works. The earth literally trembled at God's glory. I don't think God's obese. I think God is just that glorious that the earth was so scared, full of fear. And that is something that we've lost in our worship. That when we worship, we make it all about ourselves rather than who God is. I believe that when God was rocking up to seal this marriage contract that he was signing with the people of Israel, he was saying, you need to know who I am. You need to understand that up to this point, you have already seen a lot of what I can do. You've seen the 10 plagues of Israel. You've seen me provide for you in the wilderness, but you need to understand that I am still God. I love you and I am God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who sustains you. Every breath that you take proceeds from my spirit. That God is God and I am not is something that us as Christians should remember. And so as we proceed in this story, remember that God had just rocked up, that he has shown his glory and the people freak out as we should. It says this in Exodus 20 verses 18 to 19. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and hit the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not have God speak to us or we will die. See, there's something that we need to understand. I'm wondering whether we have lost the fear of God. And we don't like the fear of God because we don't like feeling scared. But what is the fear of God all about? And how does the fear of God match the love of God? And... I've always wondered this, but then it suddenly came a lot clearer as Beck and I were preparing for adoption and we were doing our reading and our understanding and, and um, some experts were writing about this whole idea of how kids test boundaries. Every parent knows this, right? Kids love testing boundaries. Kids don't just do what you say. They actually will try to do the exact opposite of what you say to see what you're going to do. And so these parenting experts, psychologists, child development experts, they say when you have a child, you need to pick your battles and you either just let things go or if you step in, you make sure you win. And especially when it comes to foster kids, adopted kids, the problem about it is that they don't know you. They don't know your strengths. They don't know your abilities, and so they will test you to see whether you are capable of protecting them. The way they determine whether you can protect them is whether you put the fear of God in them. But how a child's mind seems to work, according to experts, is this. If you are able to handle me, you can handle what comes at me. 
Think about it this way. If you can handle what I throw at you, then I'm going to trust that you can handle what the world's going to throw at me. I'm not going to trust you and place my full uh, uh, security and hope in you until you prove that you can protect me. How do I know that? I'm going to test these boundaries that you set. How strong are you? How willing are you to take your stand against me? Because if you can face me, then you can face the struggles that come my way. And that's where the fear of God comes in and the love of God also comes in. You see, a parent that lets a child do anything that the child wants to do, it's not a parent, you're a slave. And God is not going to be my slave. God's not going to go around saying, oh, you want that? Let me be your genie in your bottle. No, no, no. God is saying, test me. Know that I am God. I am going to do exactly what I say I'm going to do. And the consequences that befall Israel are exactly the consequences that God put in writing for them. He drew the boundary, the Israelites crossed the boundary, and said, okay, consequences. Why? Is it because he hated them? No, because he's shown them, when I draw the boundary, I mean it. But when you're in this boundary, I will look after you. I will protect you. I will be your God. And you need to see this. You need to see this in Exodus 23, 25 to 26. This is what God says, Worship the Lord your God and His blessing will be on your food and your water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. God says, this is the line. You worship me and me alone and my blessing and my protection is going to be upon you. If you leave my boundary, then I'm going to leave you for what the world gives you, which is death and destruction. But here you have a choice because I am willing to extend my boundaries around you so that you can have life and life abundantly. Christian, we need to understand that that same promise has been given to us. In John 10 verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that you can have life and life abundantly. Jesus is saying in a similar kind of a way, I will protect you. I am willing to spread my boundary over you. But guess what? There is still a boundary. You don't get to go across outside of that boundary and still expect God to be acting on your behalf. God is saying, no, this is my boundary that I have established. Well, how dare you? Well, I'm God, okay? I've just made the whole mountain shake. You've seen the smoke. You've seen the fire. You've seen the lightning. You've seen the thunder. You, hear, you heard the trumpet. Where the heck did this trumpet come from? I don't know. When God rocks up, trumpets play out of midair. Here is God. It's crazy. But when we only see Jesus as the one that, that is love, and we don't understand that Jesus is also God, we lose sight of something. And notice that there in Exodus 23, 25, it says the key word here is not obey my laws. It's saying worship the Lord your God. See, worship is a very key part of us staying in God's boundaries. And I'm going to show you why. Basically, from here, the Israelites say, we're going to do everything that, Jesus, uh, that, that God says in the covenant. All the different laws that he's put forward, uh, 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 the Israelites say, yes, we are going to obey them. 
And then what happened uh, is that uh, Moses then goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to meet with God. During that time, Moses uh, is given uh, the plans for the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood. All really boring stuff if you don't understand what's taking place. What is taking place is that God is saying to Moses, I am your God and this is how you will know I'm your God. You will have a tabernacle that represents my presence and you have a priesthood of people that know how to minister my presence. He is basically putting the ring on the finger. That's what this is all about, okay? And why it takes 40 days and 40 nights? Well, God likes a really big ring, okay? He was just establishing a really big ring for the people to know, you are my people. I have married you. I'm putting my name on you, okay? That's what's going on. But we hit, oh, this is the exciting part. I've been, everything that has been said so far is the introduction. This is the meat of the message. Are you still with me? I told you we're going through Exodus, Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. This is the speed bump of all speed bumps in the book of Exodus, Exodus 32, 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the high priest of Israel and, and said, Come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up, up out of Egypt, who knows what happened to him? Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with the tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Very interesting. So God is finalizing the marriage contract to which the Israelites had said yes to, okay? And then we have this scene where in our English translation, it doesn't carry what was taking place in the Hebrew. You see, when we see um, in Exodus 32 verses 1, it, uh, um, the Israelites saying, come, make us gods who will go before us. Uh, the word gods is actually the word Elohim. Okay, and when Aaron is fashioning this calf and then he presents this calf to the Israelites, he says, these are your gods. That's what it says in English, but in Hebrew it says, this is your Elohim. For those who have been Christian for quite a while, especially those who've been around for quite a while in the traditional sense, the word Elohim should spark off something for you because the word Elohim represents God. The Hebrew people were really scared about using the name of God, and so they used the titles of God. So instead of saying uh, King Jesus, they were saying Your Majesty. That's the effect of it. But the word Elohim can be translated gods, but in the Hebrew, it is more likely referring to God. And then I want to show you the clincher because in verse 5, it's as though Aaron was getting more and more courage because he says tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. We read to the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's tomorrow there'll be a festival to Yahweh. And the word Yahweh is literally God's sacred name that the Hebrew people do not use lightly at all. Basically, what is happening in Exodus 32 is not that the Israelites were walking away from God. 
but rather they were scared of the God that Moses was meeting with. They were basically thinking, if Moses, the best of us, the mediator of the people of Israel, is killed in God's presence, then we don't want to worship that God, but we still like that God, and we're basically married to Him, so why not we make a manageable, manipulatable version at the bottom of the mountain? They weren't abandoning God in their mind. They were still following Yahweh. They weren't taking on Zeus. They weren't taking on, who are some of the other gods? I don't even know them. Whatever. They weren't trying to worship another god. They were simply wanting to worship a god that was more at their level. And this is the crux of adoration. See, the crux of adoration is that you are giving divine honor to. You are ascribing a divine attribute of. You, you, you are seeing what you are worshiping as God. And so what was taking place in Exodus 32 is that God had shown His divine nature. We just read about that. And the Israelites went, too scary. Let's make a golden cow and worship that instead. They placed their adoration, they placed their divine worship, the, the worship of the divine on something that was man-made. And that really challenged me because so often I think about adoration in terms of another word that is a better description. I think of adoration as fondness. When I stop the element of adoration that makes it adoration, which is that you are honoring the divine, we make it that we are honoring whatever gives us pleasure. Think about the examples that I gave to you right at the start when I talked about, hey, you adore the morning tea, you adore the sunset, you adore your pet, you adore what? You're adoring something that gives you pleasure. You are fond of it. You're not adoring it. You're fond of it. And that's where there's a problem in our worship because so often we don't worship the true God because we're too scared of the true God. And so we become fond of God. We become fond of Jesus who would give his life for us. But when God rocks up and says, this is the boundary line, we're like, oh no, I want my golden calf, please. When God says, be holy for I am holy, we go, but Jesus is so much nicer. He would die for me. You see, the, 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 the issue with adoration is that we are recognizing what is truly divine or who is truly divine. And what is divine should be more than man-made. I know that sounds a little bit simple, but as I ask you to consider, who or what are you adoring? See, when I look at my life, I look at my example, I know I've adored a number of different things. 
And I've spoken to many people that have adored other things. Employment, grades, relationships, sometimes even holidays, lifestyles, perspectives. And we give divine authority to these man-made things. And then we say to these things, if I obey you, bless me. How do you know whether you're adoring something or not? Or how much time do you give to it? How much priority do you give to it? How do you compare that to what you give to God? And in our Western context, I wonder how much of this adoration is actually an adoration of self. What I get, how I feel, what's in it for me. And we ask God, God, what's in it for me? And we stop our adoration of God because God has drawn a boundary that we don't like. See, our worship at Lyft should never be about how we feel or what we want. It should always, first and foremost, be, this is God that we're talking about. Oh, I don't feel like worshiping today. I don't feel like getting up today. I don't feel like reading my Bible today. I don't feel like praying today. I don't feel like worshiping today. Oh, I'm sure that God's gracious. <laughs> You're not worshiping God. You're not adoring God. You're worshiping yourself and how you feel. Nice Christmas message, mate. <laughs> but you notice, like, Christmas carols, as much as we do sing about God, we sing about how small and manageable God is. Silent night. Oh, perfect baby Jesus who does not cry. It's that old little town of Bethlehem. Oh, Jesus, small, meek, mild. We don't sing about, and we don't even need to talk about Christmas. We can talk about our everyday worship. How often do I sing about God, your majesty, your power, your might, you, not me? How often do we sing songs that truly ascribe adoration, honor to God, when most of our songs are about what's in it for me or what you have done for me, we lose the ability to adore. So don't call it adoration. Maybe call it a little reminder of how God loves me. That's probably true, but that's not worship. And so I want us to go on a rediscovery of what worship is as a church. That is not about what I get, but it's about who God is. And if you don't like that, consider this. Did you create the heavens and the earth? Do you know beginning to end? Do you search the hearts of men and women and know everything that is hidden? Do you place events in order to accomplish your divine purposes? Are you in control? 
Because if you are, can you please get that COVID vaccination done? Please. Can you please give everyone multi-million jobs so we'll never complain? Can everyone get half a year holiday for whenever you want? <laughs> Wrong God. And so we can get the band up this morning. I know this is not a nice message in the sense of just making you feel warm and fuzzy, but I hope at some level you understand that God is God. We worship the God who would, in His grace, die on the cross for us. But we also worship the God who makes the earth tremble at His arrival. We worship the God who will call us righteous and call us to enter His presence with confidence. But we also worship the God who is just and fair and who administers justice on the earth. We worship a God who empathizes and knows us. But at the same time, He doesn't shift the boundary lines just for our sake. And so when we worship in song, if it's about how you feel, you're not adoring God. But if it's about God, how great He is, then we're getting there. I love that the psalmist writes, we enter His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. Why thanksgiving? I think it's because we're reorientating ourselves and not seeing how much I can get out of this and saying, I've already gotten. It's not saying, what, what is in it for me? We're saying, God, I, I, I know that, that you, I can trust you. If your trust and your hope, your dependence is not on God, it's not adoration. And I'm not saying this to say that you need to get this right. But what I'm saying is that maybe as a church, we've got this wrong that we sing songs about how nice and soft Jesus is, but when sometimes we need to realize that God can face me and all of my inadequacies and all of my rebellion and still love me, and so He can face the situations that are going to come against me. My God can take me and He can take whatever I can give Him and He can still take it because He is God. I can trust Him. My Father is bigger than what I can do. And I need to be under His care and His wing and His boundaries. I love that the Bible says that His boundary lines fall in pleasant places for me. And when we stop seeing that, when we don't have the fear of God, we stop adoring Him. Yes, sometimes life throws up circumstances that I don't understand. Life throws in situations that I have no explanation for. And yes, sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's hurting. Sometimes it's heavy. Sometimes it's depressing. Sometimes I worry. Sometimes I'm anxious. But when I get to a place where I realize that I need to adore God, I start to see that all those circumstances are not beyond His control. That I don't need to worry because God says, place it in my care. I don't need to be anxious because God says I've seen your beginning and your end I don't need to be concerned and burdened and hopeless because God says I am your hope and I am your righteousness so why don't we stand this morning
Why don't we lift up our hands? The band's going to lead us into a time of worship. And I hope that you will see that this is not about how you feel, but this is about expressing adoration to our God. This is about expressing and giving God divine authority over my life. God, you are God and I am not. And I don't want to take that glory away from you. I will lay down my crowns. I will bow down before you. I will remind myself that you are God and I am not. And I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. I adore you, God, and nothing this world will compare. In fact, God, I pray that in this moment, the things of this world will fade. The things of this world will just diminish. Help us to see them for what they are. They are temporary and they do not satisfy. But God, we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And we say, you are almighty God and you are our God. You are my God and I will worship you. I will worship you this morning. Come on, band leaders. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.